Good morning. We are going to be reading through uh, from 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. Give you a second to find that. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Jeff, I'm praying for you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, amen. We're closed. Have a happy fourth. <laughs> Not really. This is the word of the Lord, and so we need to unpack it like we do every passage that he has seen fit to put in the word. We've been working our way through this first pastoral letter to Timothy in our series entitled Building a Healthy Church, in which Paul is writing to charge a young pastor friend who is timid. He's shy. He's anxious with what's going on in his, with his responsibility to oversee the churches in Ephesus in which false teachers had been wreaking havoc. But it's more than a letter just for a pastor. It is for the entire church, for all history. As Paul writes, we saw in verses 1 to 2, with an apostolic authority as one who had been commanded by God to be an apostle. And his purpose in the letter, we know, has been this, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, here's his purpose statement, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, how we're to live, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is what? A pillar and buttress of the truth. As the people, we are the church, not the building, the people, we are to be the pillar of truth. There's a way we're to conduct ourselves and live out our lives together as we relate to each other and to God as we adorn the truth, make it look good and shine, connecting belief and behavior. That's Paul's purpose statement there. In other words, there's a design, an order to how the church is to function. In fact, God has put in place a design of wide-ranging order for all of creation. Did you know that? And humanity. And actually society at all levels, including government even. They're all God's spheres. And so he decides and defines how they work and how they're ordered. And human flourishing, actually, and God's glory is brought about when we live into and all submit, all of us now, to this ordering of creation and society that he has de uh, defined. And so, yes, as Pam alluded to today, we are 
looking at a challenging call for men and women, I want to say, created equal by God, to submit to the God-given order of distinction in our roles within the church. This is important today for us because he's specifically speaking today of the gathered assembly. That's what we're doing right now. God's people gathering for worship, which happens inside the house of God. This is the house of God. And what happens inside the house of God is what's important to Paul in this letter. We actually chose, uh, real quick, a little side note, to switch the order of this passage. We were supposed to be teaching in in chronological order today on 1 through 7 there. But I felt it much better to teach on that passage next week when we're outside for our uh, community picnic on one mediator between Christ and man rather than invite our neighbors and speak on the roles of men and women. Do you agree? So hopefully in wisdom, the staff talked through that this week. It was one of their idea, and I said, we're doing that because uh, we planned the schedule for this, and then we're like, oh, picnic Sunday. And 2, 1 through 7 would have been a perfect passage for 4th July, praying for all people in all high places, um, but we'll get to that next week. Uh, so let's begin by looking today. Here's where we're going. We're going to look at three calls today, the call to men, the call to women, and the call to all of us. Okay? We're going to look at those three calls today. So hopefully you got your outline there. There's plenty of you to fill in for those of you who like to write to remember and have your Bible open as well to this passage. Let's look at the first call to men. Men must be aware that anger and quarrels will divide the church and hinder our worship. Here in verse 8, where this is charged to men, Paul returns to the topic of prayer. What do I mean he returns to it? Well, he began the chapter, which we'll get to next week, he began the chapter in verse 1 with a discussion about prayer. Look at 2-1 with me. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All people. Well, here in verse 8, he says prayers should be made in all places. So for all people, verse 1, and now we get to verse 8, in all places. And if this passage is going to make the case that men have a unique role in leadership and women have a unique role in submission, Paul comes first right to the men with a charge. He comes right to us men. He says essentially this, you can't be fighting with each other and lead the church. You just can't. And surely, if I'm going to ask women to submit to the teaching of the elders in their church, you can't be an angry, quarreling guy. You just can't. There were divisive men in the Ephesian church, and so Paul shares his desire in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. There's our two words. Paul wants men to be praying in the church. And Paul wants men with a heart for prayer. He says they're standing up with lifted holy hands to intercede for the church. Now, the posture of hands is not so important. Lifting of the hands was a standard cultural expression of prayer at the time. Some still do it today. But what's more important to Paul is the posture of the heart, which was expressed many ways with hands. Isaiah gives us a glimpse into the problem. He says, Isaiah 1.15 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So the heart, the motive, the actions, the heart posture was the problem there. Here's what Isaiah and Paul are saying. Sin, anger, and quarreling will hinder our prayers to God. Not only in the church, but I would say in your personal life as well. Sin, anger, and quarreling will hinder our prayers to God. Prayers for our church. Prayers for our families, men. And we know this is Jesus' model as well, to have reconciliation with others before we get to worship. Look at Matthew 5. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, coming to worship now, as we are, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, like flee. Go find the one you have a quarrel with. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come to worship. Then come to offer your gift. Jesus put this at a really high value. He says, like, leave the worship service, basically. Like, go, find that person. Don't attempt to come to worship if you have anger and quarrels going on. Or another example, as you think of Scripture now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, which is relevant on this Lord's Supper Day, we're to prepare and examine our hearts before we come to the Lord's table. Do you know that in that passage, his warning is so severe that he says, he says to them, some of you in the Corinthian church have died. He says, he says, some of you in the Corinthian church are sick now because you've come to the Lord's table without first confessing and living without following Matthew 5, living in this way where you've got all kinds of stuff between you and others. He says, some of you are sick because of that. Some of you have died. You can't get much more serious warning than that, can you? Well, why is this so important? This quarreling and anger that Paul wants to see rid from the church? Because in the context of chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, the context is the evangelization and praying for the world. And, and, and the, the message of the one mediator between God and man. That's the context. The gospel and the evangelization of the world. So what is more off-putting than a man who is supposed to live like Jesus, sacrificially serving and loving like Jesus, who is full of anger and leaves quarrels and chewed up relationships in his wake? What's more contradictory than the message of the gospel of peace and reconciliation than that? Or what causes more discord than a man who knows the gospel is a gospel of peace and that peace has been made by Jesus between holy God and sinful humanity and then that man's human relationships are all full of anger and strife? You see, you see the discord? Do you see the disconnect for Paul? Amen. How often do we struggle with anger? A lot, don't we? If I'm honest, if you're honest, what is anger that leads to quarrels? What is that? Well, Ken Sandy in his brilliant book, The Peacemaker, he describes anger as an attack response. Think uh, fight or flight, it's fight, an attack response. And that's true. Anger is usually exercised, hear this now, anger is usually exercised when men were defending something. Something is feeling threatened in your world. Something we can't live without. It could be a number of things. 
It could be your ego. It could be your bank account. It could be the control you want to have. It could be our confidence. It could be our intelligence. It could be our looks. It could be our manliness. Whatever it could be, you attack these things. Watch out. That's when anger comes out. We're defending something that feels threatened, which means then the root of anger is probably usually a, a type of pride. And then quarrels happen then when we're more interested in defeating and eliminating an opponent than we are by serving and pre- pre- preserving in prayerful relationships. I like what Tim Keller said on anger and pride. He said, the Bible does not say that pride and anger might lead to destruction. It says it will. Here's the quarreling, what Paul's concerned about. Why? He says, the practical reason is that pride makes it difficult to receive advice or criticism. You ever feel that, men? He says, you can't learn from your mistakes or admit your own weaknesses. Everything has to be blamed on other people. There's the quarrels. You have to maintain the image of yourself as a competent person, as someone who's better than other people. Pride distorts your view of reality, and therefore you're going to make terrible decisions. That's tough, isn't it? Does that describe any of you men? And you as husbands. So men, do we see, I hope we see this here. Do you see why anger and quarrels might get in the way of our prayer and get in the way of our leading, whether it's in the church or in the home? It shows a heart that hasn't been truly grasped by the gospel, or at least not living out of the gospel. It's a heart bent on self-defense. It's a heart bent on winning. It's a heart bent on being right or in control or, or listened to. So what's the solution? the life of following the humble, sacrificial servant Jesus who laid down all his rights and prerogatives and submitted to his Father. I mean, listen, Jesus was the most manly man that ever lived. He was the most manly man that ever lived, and yet he was submissive in love to please his Father as he sacrificed so much. He was concerned for others. Well, on the other hand, an angry man is an obsessed man. A self-obsessed man who doesn't pray for others much and he's too concerned with himself to pray for others. So let's put this positively then. Here's what we should pursue, men. Holiness and peace as men of God. We've got to pursue it, which means we've got to go after it and get it. We're, we're part of that process, which means we don't suppress our anger or push our anger down, stuff it so deep that it never sees the light of day. Ask your heart and your blood pressure how that's working. I've been saying this over and over again throughout these past few months to almost everyone I talk to. Here's what I've been saying. If you feel hurt, if you feel anger, especially against someone in the church, have the hard conversation before you have to have the harder one. Let me put it this way, man. Imagine you were watching TV in your basement, and you were down there, your refinished basement, you're down there kicking back, maybe it's your man cave down there, and you're sitting there watching TV, and all of a sudden a, a drop of water plops on your head. You're thinking, well, what's above my head? Oh, that's the bathroom. And so you 
put the game on pause and you leave the basement, you walk to the bathroom to go explore. And imagine you walked in and you, as you walk in, you see this exploded pipe that has kind of even made its way through the drywall and it's just running water. You've got wet drywall, your floor soaked, it's now coming through the basement, the laminate's all soaked there and starting to buckle there in the bathroom. And imagine if you open that door, oh, you saw that and you just kind of went, eh, and slammed the door shut. It's the weekend. I'll take a look next week. You would never do that with your home. It would wreak not only havoc on your home, but your marriage too. You would never do that. So why do we leave broken pipes running in the church with our quarrels and anger? Why do we do that? We have to have the hard conversation. Hey, I'm angry and that hurt me. Hey, can we talk? I, I, I was wanting to deal with something that I, I kind of feel is between us that we just need to talk about. We got to. Because sooner or later, the water's going to come flooding out of the bathroom, isn't it? Sooner or later. And holiness and peace don't come naturally. They, they have to be worked out and pursued. Pursuing the salvation and sanctification in God's grace. Too much is at stake, men. In your families, in the church, to have our prayers hindered and fracture a church. Well, Timothy must have been facing that in the church there, or Paul probably wouldn't have talked about it, but there was something going on as well with the women. So let's take a look at our second charge to the women. He says, women must avoid distracting with their dress in the church is what Paul moves to now. Look at verses 9 and 10. After the positive call to, for our men to pursue holiness and peace, verse 9 and 10 say, likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, before we jump into the details, the, the way this sentence is written in the original language and the Greek sentence actually has Paul admitting here that women are beautiful. It actually has a positive tone to it, even if it doesn't read that way in the English. He says, I want women to adorn themselves, actually. In a way, he's saying it's okay to be even beautiful and increase and exhibit that beauty, as John Stott says. So Paul's not giving a mandate today. Please hear this. He's not giving a mandate that women need to be uh, uh, frumpy or wear a potato sack to church. That's not what he's saying. The verse has been maybe abused that way. There's no biblical mandate that asks women to mar their beauty or feel shame or guilt for liking clothes. Nothing. That's not what we're getting at here. It's much better, as we did with the men, to get at the heart rather than make a list of acceptable clothing. Paul mentions here a few things, modesty, self-control. He mentions braided hair and, and gold and pearls, but what is he getting at? What is he getting at in their culture was that women were dressing, in this setting at least, in distracting ways to bring more attention than normal to themselves. It could have been sexually provocative, maybe. 
It could have been flaunting wealth as he talks about gold and the pearls. It could have been the Roman uh, hairstyles that had become popular at that time. They were eccentric hairstyles. You've probably seen the pictures or on co- coins or different things, old pictures of eccentric hairstyles that had come to symbolize a woman's independence from her husband at that time. Could have been all those things, any of them. So what do we do with this today? <laughs> what, what do we make of this today? Well, first, on the one hand, we want to avoid the legalism of the culture that used to lay out a specific dress code for the church. Some of you maybe grew up in churches like that, places where there was a specific dress code, and if a visitor came in, even was, they were informed of the dress code. But we also can't be relativists to our clothing. Our clothing does matter. Imagine if I got up here on a Sunday morning in flip-flops, a tank top, and a bathing suit. Now, would it be sin? I don't know. But would it distract some of you? You better believe it. Or if I got up here with a Coors Light t-shirt on? How dare you wear that? He's got no respect. And culturally, you might be right if it distracted you from this. That's why David and I kind of just try to hit the middle of the road. A decent shirt and pants. Because we don't want to distract. So how about our women? I really love the quote from Megan Hill, and I think it's good to hear a woman's voice on this. It's in an article entitled The Modesty Conversation. She said, after acknowledging now, before we get to the quote, after acknowledging that the modesty conversation is a hard one, she says, the deeper question with our daughters is what kind of woman is God making you into? She says this, look at this quote, standing at the rack of shorts and swimsuits, we have an opportunity for discipleship. The real question is not about how short or how low, though we have to answer those along the way to be truly helpful. The real question is about identity. And a modestly dressed woman, and she's quoting another author here, is presenting herself in a way that does violence to who she really is. What we wear tells a story about who we are. When God tailored the first clothes for Adam and Eve, clothes that I'm convinced were beautifully made and not all ragged Fred Flintstone outfits pictured in Sunday school materials, he was expressing something about who they were, fallen and yet tenderly cared for by God. And everything we've pulled out of our closets in the generation since ought to tell a similar story. Don't you like that better than just like, here's the rule Especially if we're talking to our daughters. Here's the rule. Here's the length. Here's the ruler. Let me know, right? How high or, you know. But a story. Wow. In other words, we should seek to be the type of people that point to Jesus with our outward dress rather than distract. We should not compete for the attention with the one we're wanting to give attention to. That's the story we want to tell as women and as men. So let's put it positively. And Paul puts it positively, dress with godly good works. Dress with godly good works. That's the clothing. That's the wardrobe. That's the story we want to tell. That when you look in the mirror, you hear the words of Christ. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's not so much. Of course, we've got to answer that question about length and what's showing and what isn't, right? We have to. 
But the larger story is what story are we telling with our clothing? Whose are you? You're the one who's fallen yet tenderly loved by God. So our charge to mend was to pursue holiness and peace so as not to destroy our prayer and worship. Our charge to women was to dress in godly good work so as not to detract from God or distract as we gather. How about our charge to all of us? We must promote the God-given equal value and dignity of men and women all the while as they live out, and I'll, let you, I'll leave you with the time to write this out, the distinctive complementing roles in the church. We must promote the God-given equal value and dignity of men and women as they live out the distinctive complementing roles in the church. We're going to unpack that. That's clearly the most controversial portion of our passage today, these last few verses. And I'm not going to get to say everything about it here. I'm not going to get to cover all elements of roles of men and women and agreements and disagreements. But now, as we approach it, though, remember, Paul is not specifically picking on women here. Remember, all of chapter 1, Paul was chastising men who teach false doctrines, who have shipwrecked their faith. And beginning in our chapter today, he's chastising men for their anger and their quarreling. And as we get to this section number two, our second point would be that Paul's teaching is not new. Paul's going to root his words all the way back in Genesis 1 through 3, as we're going to see. But here... Paul does take a turn to speak to women here, but I would argue this, that even as he's speaking to women here in these verses, there's a message for us as men in these verses too, as there was in our message to men. We begin, however, with two reminders here in our main point that you see up there, that men and women were absolutely created equal by God and in God's eyes. They have equal value as image bearers. Gifts of the Spirit are given. I think all gifts to men and women. Even the gift of teaching. They have the same potential and the same dignity and the same worth and the same value. They all, they, we have equal access as men and women to the means of grace. All those things. God loves them, men and women, equally. But we also, when we come to Scripture, see... He gives different roles and responsibilities to men and women. Distinctive roles that complement each other. When something complements something, it comes alongside and makes it all the better both ways. Complementing each other. The way our culture has seen to change this is that any distinctives or differences must be an inequality and therefore must be done away with and must be bad. Remember that we made the case at the beginning that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. He's always a God that's in bringing out order and a God of order, and he's designed the world the way it will work best and honor him. He's the designer and the maker. The Trinity is helpful here. You're thinking, what, the Trinity? The Trinity's helpful in talking about men and women relationships? 
The Trinity is helpful because even in the Godhead where there are three persons in one and one God, we have equality in the persons, don't we? We would never say one of them is less than God. As an Orthodox Christian, Father is as equal as the Son, is as equal as the Spirit. They are all divine in three persons and one God, and yet we have distinct roles of the persons, don't we? Even in the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father in a way the Father doesn't submit to the Son. The Father directs the Son in a way the Son doesn't direct the Father. And the Son delights to fulfill His calling as a gift to the Father. And so men and women in the church have distinct roles to mirror the Trinity and mirror the gospel. That is why God made the differences. Hear that. He made the differences so that when we come together in marriage, when we come together in the church, we'd point to not the differences, we'd point to the gospel and to the Godhead. That's why he did it. Here Paul is what he's doing. He's practically speaking now. He's specifically speaking. We need to make this, this is really important. He's specifically speaking about the gathering of the church, a context, what we're doing right now. Historically, there must have been some women in that church who were undermining the teaching of doctrine and the leadership of men in the church. Possibly they were being swayed by the male uh, false teachers who were mentioned in chapter 1. Something was going on for Paul to mention this in a letter. It was written to a context, an historical place and time. So Paul does give, I believe, and we're going to pack here, a prohibition in the church. Here is what it is. Women should not teach and lead as an elder slash pastor there. What? Really? Could he possibly mean that still when he writes verse 11? Take a look with me in 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, before we unpack this, I want to say there are real Christians, real Christians, who disagree on what this passage is saying. And I also know as we come to this passage, we look at passages and all of the Bible, actually, and we look and see eternal principles that are there and then the cultural expressions of it. What do I mean by that? Even in our passage, we've got the external principle of women that are called to be modest, which we say is for all time, women should be modest, have good sense and decency and godliness. Those would be the eternal principles. But in our culture, if a woman comes to church with a braid in her hair, we don't see that as a disrespect to a man, do we? No. The cultural expression of it has changed. It's the same reason, 1 Corinthians 11, we don't require veils or head coverings in church. A cultural expression has changed. No one would ever look at our church and go, why aren't the women respecting the men and God by covering their heads? No one would ever say that. And so, yes, there are times when it's okay to look at the eternal per perspective and truth versus the cultural expression, but that's also can be dangerous too. Because many really eternal, truthful expressions have been thrown away by saying, eh, that was for that time and that place. So we have to be really careful with it, too. Some have made the argument here that the eternal principle of submission remains here for women. 
But the cultural expression of teaching doesn't really apply anymore. And so since we don't see that as a violation of submission anymore, women should teach and be ordained as ministers. But as we'll see here in a minute, I'm convinced, number one, that there's some value and that Paul sees this as an eternal truth. Paul has in mind here the office of an elder, which we'll look at in chapter 3. How do we know that? Because the two things that elders are to do are to teach with authority or with authority they're to teach to lead. Those two go together. And actually, there's no authority I would even have our elders in this church other than teaching this, right? There's no God-given necessarily quality to a man or to a pastor apart from the Word of God that gives him any authority in a church, right? Nothing. It's the Word. And so when he talks about this lead and teach, I do think he's talking specifically in the context of the gathered church when the elder pastor stands up to teach the doctrine of the Bible publicly. And here he says that women are not to exercise the only authority that can be had in the church, as we said, preaching the Scripture in the corporate gathering. So what I'm doing right now is what Paul is limiting. And if you think about it, men are limited too. Those men in our church who do not have the gift of teaching because it is a gift from God, they're prohibited from teaching in this way too. Paul is saying that God has designed and ordered the church so that men must step into this responsibility. Here's a couple important things. Now, that does not mean that women can't be teachers. In fact, women can exercise all kinds of leadership in the church as everyone does under the authority of the elders has, that, that under the elders he has placed in that church. All kinds of places. In fact, pretty much 99%. It also doesn't mean that men are smarter. It doesn't mean that men are naturally better leaders. Some women have gifts of leadership that far surpass those of men. What it means is that the Creator, for His own reasons, has asked us to do different things and trust Him in the design. That's what it means. Preaching as an elder is, the, is one thing that God has asked men to do. And here he's asked the women, he's asked them to learn quietly in the gathering. Now some clarification there too. This does not mean that a woman is to be totally quiet as soon as she enters the church or that she can't speak in a worship service. Pam read the scripture today, as we have women do many times. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.5, he assumes that women are praying and, and prophesying or reading Scripture in the church. He just assumes that's happening. It does not mean that a woman's got to keep her mouth shut as soon as she walks through the church doors. It doesn't mean that. And in fact, other places in Scripture talk about all of us speaking the truth to one another. All of us speaking the truth and admonishing one another, the whole church. So, of course, men will speak truth to women in a church context. And, of course, women will speak truth to men in a church context. We'd be foolish to cut out either 50%, either half of our body and say, well, you don't get to speak the truth into our lives. No, that would be foolish and wrong. What Paul means here is that a woman should listen with a submissive spirit to the God-ordained leaders he's put in the church when they preach, especially if they're one who's not angry and quarrelsome. 
Now, if this is true, here's what this means for men. Men must steward that role with humble servanthood. We better steward this well, men. Whether it's in the church or in your home, with a responsibility like this, can you see why Paul wants men to be pursuing holiness and peacemaking? What a huge responsibility we have as men. It's the reason I still get nervous to get up and preach after 15 years. It's not public speaking anymore. That left after a couple years and after I dropped out of speech class two different times because I was so scared. That's gone. That fear is kind of gone. But standing up to authoritatively proclaim this today, that's a big responsibility. To lead in the church, especially those who are elders, and to lead in our, our home as husbands and fathers. Here's the challenge, though, men. We must resist the temptation to abuse our authority. It's so real, isn't it? It's so real. And women are not required to remain in a situation where it's being abused. Of course, that needs to be worked out in the context of a local church. In each individual situation, needs unique guidance and counsel, of course. It's not a blanket statement there. And submission doesn't mean that a woman can't confront or push back on her husband or ask a pastor a question and say, I don't know if I agree with that. It doesn't mean that. In other words, to men, we'll keep going back and forth here. If you ever use a verse on submission in the Bible to try and force your wife to submit to you, you've missed the boat entirely. You've actually totally missed it. Submission isn't something you're to try and force. Do you know what it is? It's actually a voluntary gift from a wife, from a woman to her husband. Or as she listens and learns to the el- from the elders in her church with humility. And she actually models Christ as she submits to her godly husband as Jesus did to the Father. Do you know that, women? You get to uniquely image Jesus in a way. And men, we model Christ with the sacrificial servant leadership. The kind of leadership an elder, a pastor, a man in his home is to exercise is servant leadership. If you ever see it as, well, hey, I've got a, I've got a coupon to get my way. First Timothy, Ephesians 5, hey, I've got a get-out-of-jail-free card. You've got to submit. Hey, God says it. You've totally missed the boat. Servant leadership that's humble, sacrificial, laying down his needs and wants and concerns for the sake of the unit. That's what a leader does, doesn't he? Whether it's military, whether it's government, they're supposed to, right? Or family or church, the leader lays down his wants and concerns for the sake of the family and the church to lead them to Jesus. It's not to be used to control or manipulate for our selfish wants and needs. It's to love and serve and fulfill others' needs. I love the way Rebecca McLaughlin, she struggled with this concept big time. When she was told, I am to submit? She's actually a woman who 
uh, struggles with same-sex attraction, who has become married over time and has kids. But she, when she went to, came to submission, she came and said, well, let me ask myself this question. How would I feel if the command to men was given to wives? So here's the command to men with wives put in there. Wives, love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. You see that there? We're both called to things that without Christ are actually impossible. And men, if you love a woman that way, so now replace wife there because it's husbands and men actually in Scripture. If you love a woman that way, would they not also gladly follow that kind of leader? I mean, that's the reality. Who wouldn't want somebody that would stand out in front of you for Jesus' sake? would come alongside of you and cheer you on and pray for you as he served you and brought you to Jesus. See, here's what we're seeing here. The gospel of Jesus redefines authority and manliness, and it redefines submission for women. The gospel redefines how we should interact with each other. That's why the differences point to the gospel, because they are countercultural. They are frowned upon. They are kicked out of the church even these distinctives. And men, we have to understand this, and if we don't understand this, we've got to hit the reset button and seek the forgiveness of our spouse and children. So we've got to steward this leadership well. Let's talk for a minute about the reasons Paul speaks of this. Here's where we kind of get back into the design in Genesis 1-3. to Here's why I believe this pattern now for men to lead in the church setting and preach and women to listen with humility in the church setting, why I believe it's not just a cultural expression for that time, but it's binding for us. Here's our first reason. God's design and order at creation gave the man an authority for sacrificial leadership and the woman submission as a strong helper. Verse 13 is short and sweet, but it says... For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What's Paul getting at there? He's making this argument, this case for the order of the church, which is the purpose of the whole letter. Uh, Chapter 315, the whole purpose. He goes back to the garden. He goes back to creation. He goes back before the fall now, when things were as perfect as they've ever been on earth, right? He goes back to that. So he's pointing to enduring revelation as he points back before the fall that God gave Adam a unique responsibility to cherish, to love, to lead, to guide, to protect, to provide for his family and wife. He created the man before the woman. It's not that he's saying a man is more special. not saying a man is smarter, as we said, or just a naturally better leader. He's just saying there was an order. God could have instantly said this, And they both would have poofed right in front of them, right there, in front of him. He chose for a reason. God does everything out of order and and specific reason. And so he created man first and the woman out of his side. He's not giving us his opinion here. He's pointing to God's revelation at creation. He's pointing to the good design of God. And that's where it takes faith. Because it can be scary to say, I'm to submit? Especially if you've got a man full of anger and quarreling. It takes trusting the Lord. Or, or 
you want me to stand up there, Lord, and open your word to these people? And that's how you designed it? We have to trust that, his good design. He goes one step further here, though, and our second reason here, to let us know at the fall what we saw happen. Here's what we saw happen. Satan's disordering and distortion of the order. That's what, these two reasons why I think this is eternal. For truth. The one, he go, points back to men and women, creation order before the fall. And the second one is this. How Satan distorted and disordered the natural order. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What's he saying there? You probably know the story of uh, the Adam and Eve in the garden. I think you do. I'll retell it a little bit if you don't. But Adam and Eve are there in the garden. God created Adam first and Eve to be a strong helper. Now, that, that help word does mean strong helper. It's a military term mostly that means bringing to the table what's lacking in the other. That's how we get the idea of compliment. So being a helper does not mean weakness. It actually means you bring your strengths to the union, strengths that he might not even have, a strong helper. So they're there, Adam and Eve in the garden, and Adam's been, and Eve together have been given the, the job to uh, oversee creation, to rule over it, to name it, to cultivate it, to build the garden, see it spread out, and now here comes a creature that they're supposed to name some kind of creature, a creature comes to Eve and she's deceived by his lies. And then she in turn goes to Adam and teaches, preaches to Adam. And then he sins, which plunges humanity into how we got where we are today, the fall. Paul is not saying here that Eve is more gullible than Adam. And so saying that, well, women are more gullible than men, therefore they shouldn't teach. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that they were to rule over creation and Satan in his wisdom knew, I'm going to take the order and I'm going to flip it. I should go to Adam as the leader and spiritual head of this family. I'm going to go to Eve and see what happens. And though he goes and he deceives her, so a creature rules over them. They were to rule over a creature. He goes to Eve disrupting and disordering the order. He undercuts Adam's authority. And you know something? Adam was there the whole time, I believe. He stood there passively and did nothing. God's design was flipped on its head. So yes, the sin of the garden was to be godlike, to get that fruit, to have your, their eyes open. But even within that sin was the sin of taking God's good order, as Satan knew it, and wrecking it, thrashing it, turning it upside down, and then hoping that forever on in it, into the life of the world, we distort it. That was his hope. And we've been doing it ever since, haven't we? Distorting what God designed. In short, here's what Paul's saying positively then. Women and men, we are sanctified, we're made, we're made holy, we honor God, we glorify God, we shine the gospel, however you want to say it, as we live out these distinct roles and responsibilities. It's good. It's hard, yes, but it's good to live out these distinct roles and responsibilities. I like how one commentator put it, and we are wrapping up here. Sin entered the world. 
when man abdicated his God-given responsibility to lead, man didn't step up with godly, gracious leadership. Paul used this truth to say to the church that God's design in the home and in the church is good. God's design for qualified men to lead as, as elders is good. Just as God's design for godly men to lead as husbands is good. So let's wrap with this crazy verse 15. What in the world does that mean? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Actually, nobody really knows what the first half of that verse means. <laughs> we really don't. It's one of the hardest translations in the, in the New Testament. We really don't know. No one actually knows. Maybe he's talking, maybe, about the fact that uh, the, even though Eve ate the fruit, the Savior would come through a woman. Maybe. And that we shouldn't forget that. Or women shouldn't. Maybe he's saying as the false teachers were forbidding marriage and they were tearing down gender distinctions in the church there that childbirth is something unique to women that women, only women can do. We know he's not saying that a woman must have a child to be saved in the saved from sin eternal sense. We know that. How do we know that? Because we're not saved by the birth of a child. We're saved by the death of Jesus. That's how we know that. So what he's quite saying, we're not quite sure. It's clear to know that, yes, those are character traits that women should pursue and are signs of those who are redeemed in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control. But we know we're not saved. You're not saved. We're not saved by even the birth of Jesus. We're saved by the death of resurrection of Jesus. And that's where we go today. It's where we end today at the table. But I also know this about the table and the cross, that the table that points to the cross is the thing you and I need if we are ever even going to make an attempt at living into what God's designed us to be. I mean, what other than the cross points to a new type of male headship? I will stand in front of you. I will stand in between you and a holy God of wrath. I will get out in front for the sake of my family and take what we all deserve. Is that not the representation of manhood that you need? How about the submission? Yes, Lord, I, Father, I will go on that mission for them. I will risk it all. I will leave my eternal dwelling place of heaven and my rights and prerogatives that I have there, and I will go humbly to the earth to submit to you, Father, for the sake of the family. Do you not see? You do see, I know. It comes together in the cross. And then to think we could ever do it without that, without our Savior pointing the way and redeeming us, we can't. You can't submit the way God wants you to apart from the gospel. Men, you can't lead the way God wants you to apart from the gospel. And that's what the table shows us today. As we take it in faith for salvation, we also take it in faith believing that what God designed is good. So take a minute. Prepare your hearts. As we even talked about in our passage today, as I think the worship band will come up and kind of get us ready. Take a couple moments of quiet solitude in your heart and mind with the Lord.